Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 19, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Well, Deuteronomy 15 continues with the Lord's laws concerning helping the poor and the disadvantaged. And, you know, God's character is such that he places the needs of the poor as a very high priority, but he also places the responsibility of caring for the poor on the shoulders of every individual in the community of those who are set apart for God. And with those having the most, he expects those to do the most. Now, as we prepare to read chapter 15, take notice that the God principle of release or remission is front and center. More specifically here in this chapter, it's release from debt or bondage. Now, we're going to examine this concept very carefully because release or remission is one of the principles upon which mankind's salvation rests. Okay. Release, Shemitah in, in Hebrew, indicates a, a cancellation of one's indebtedness that often involved servitude in a very literal way in the ancient times. And the New Testament emphasizes that by means of faith in Messiah, we gain release from our debt to God due to our sins against Him and from our servitude to sin itself. Now, it is, of course, in the Torah where we find the principle of release thoroughly discussed. The New Testament fully expects the reader to already understand this principle. Now please also be reminded what Deuteronomy actually is. It is Moses' Sermon on the Mount. It is Moses expounding on the law. He's preaching, if you would. Therefore, Deuteronomy will take a stated principle or law, many of which we've encountered in the earlier books of Torah, and then go on to explain its meaning and intent and how the principle ought to be carried out. Now, sometimes things are modified slightly because the situation of living in tents out in the wilderness was going to be, was significantly different than living in a settled life in villages and cities in Canaan. So, pick up your Bibles and open uh, open them please to Deuteronomy chapter 15 if you have the complete Jewish Bible that's page 214 214 read along with me at the end of every seven years you are to have a Shemitah here is how the Shemitah is to be done Every creditor is to give up what he has loaned to his fellow member of the community. He is not to force his neighbor or relative to repay it. Because Adonai's time of remission has been proclaimed. You may demand that a foreigner repay his debt, but you are to release your claim on whatever your brother owes you. In spite of this, there will be no one needy among you because Adonai will certainly bless you in the land which Adonai your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you will listen carefully to what Adonai your God says and take care to obey all these meets both, these commands that I'm giving you today. Yes, Adonai your God will bless you as he's promised you. You will lend money to many nations without having to borrow. 
You will rule over many nations without their ruling over you. If someone among you is needy, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which Adonai your God is giving you, you are not to harden your heart or shut your hand from giving to your needy brother. No, you must open your hand to him and lend him enough to meet his need and enable him to obtain what he wants. Guard yourself against allowing your heart to entertain the mean-spirited thought that because the seventh, seventh year, the year of Shemitah, is at hand, that you would be stingy toward your needy brother and not give him anything. For then he may cry out to Adonai against you, and it will be your sin. Rather, you must give to him, and you are not to be grudging when you give to him. If you do this, Adonai, your God will bless you and all your work and everything you undertake, for there will always be poor people in the land. That is why I'm giving you this order. You must open your hand to your poor and needy brother in your land. Now, if your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh, you're to set him free. Moreover, when you set him free, don't let him leave empty-handed, but supply him generously from your flock, threshing floor, wine press, from whatever God, uh, Adonai, your God has blessed you with, you're to give to him. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And Adonai, your God, redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this order today. But if he says to you, I don't want to leave you, because he loves you in your household, and because his life with you is a good one, then take an awl and pierce his ear through right into the door, and he'll be your slave forever. Do the same with your female slave. Don't resent it when you set him free, since during his six years of service he will be he has been worth twice as much as a hired employee. Then Adonai your God will bless you in everything you do. All the firstborn males in your herd of cattle and in your flock you are to set aside for Adonai your God. You are not to do any work with a firstborn from your herd or shear a, a firstborn sheep. Each year you and your household are to eat in the presence of Adonai your God in the place which Adonai will choose. But if it has a defect, if it's lame or blind or has some kind of fault, you're not to sacrifice it to Adonai your God. Rather, eat it on your own property. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it, just like gazelle or deer. Just don't eat its blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. Within the first 18 verses, we find a set of three provisions of the law that are designed to properly care for and protect the most vulnerable and dependent of Israeli society, the poor people. And these laws deal with the things that vex the most needy of every society, their inability to obtain loans. And if they get a loan, how do they pay it off? And then how that can often end up in indentured servitude, which was sometimes the only way a poor person had to pay back borrowed money or even to make a living. Now, this is not the first time in Torah that we've run across these kinds of provisions concerning servitude and debt and release. We find ordinances about this subject in in Exodus chapters 21 through 23 and Leviticus chapter 25. Now, it would make today's study much too long to go back and examine and compare all those passage, passages with the similar ones we have here in Deuteronomy. So let me just make some general observations about them. 
First of all, the Exodus laws and the Deuteronomy laws are very similar to one another, but the laws of Leviticus on this subject are a little bit different. The most outstanding differences involves who are subject to these laws and in what situations the laws are to be applied. Second of all, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, uh, it's concerned with the welfare of individual persons. Whereas in Leviticus, it's more concerned with the corporate welfare of family units and then the nation as a whole. Okay, now, Israel was a tribal society with its structure consisted, consisting of family units and uh, called households and then uh, uh, clans and then tribes. A household was the smallest unit, all right, and um, it would equate kind of like to what we in modern Western society might call an extended family. All right, it usually consisted of maybe three, even four generations of a single family living in a tightly knit economic and social relationship. The next step up was the clan, right, and. That consisted of several branches of extended families, right? Um, that pointed to a common ancestor of some sort. Then the level above the clan was the tribe, and it consisted of a group of clans that could point back to a single founder of that whole tribe. Households had the closest blood relationships among the individuals. Clans a little bit less so, and then tribes the most distant. Therefore, while Leviticus is more concerned with the welfare and rights of entire clans and tribes, right, um, Deuteronomy and uh, Exodus are more concerned with individuals. Okay, It's in Leviticus that we get the laws of Jubilee, that every 50 years Hebrew servants are to be completely released from service to their masters. Also, land that has been sold is to be returned, remitted to its original historical owner and then all monetary debts are supposed to be canceled. But here in Deuteronomy, we find laws that cancel debts and release slaves from their servitude in a far shorter time cycle. Every seven years. Okay. The 50-year cycle of release is called the Jubilee cycle. The seven-year cycle of release is called the sabbatical year cycle. Now allow me to draw a picture of what kind of impact these laws have. Okay. If you can imagine a scenario whereby you loan money to a poor person in need, but then the law says that at a predetermined point in time, the entire loan must be forgiven and the debt canceled, regardless of how much, if any, of that debt has been repaid. Then you can also imagine that as the lender, you would certainly prefer that this forgiveness cycle only happened once every 50 years and not every seven. Okay. On the other hand, if you're a borrower, you'd much prefer that your debts were forgiven every seven years rather than every 50. 
So as you can probably also imagine, the sages and the rabbis have had a field day since the Torah was written, trying to determine just how to reconcile these laws of release as stated in Deuteronomy and Exodus, those based on seven-year cycles, versus the laws of Leviticus that were based on 50-year cycles. And which law would prevail under what circumstance of indebtedness and servitude? Now, theologically speaking, the apparent discrepancy between the laws of release of Leviticus versus those of Deuteronomy and Exodus present us with a challenge to reconcile them. The standard method to make all these laws come into harmony rather than conflicting has generally been to say that with the seven-year cycle of release, what's intended is not complete cancellation of the debt, but only that the payments towards paying off the debt can't be collected during the seventh year of each seven-year cycle. In other words, the payments on the debt are just postponed for a year. But then, after the year, uh, after that year, the payments are due once again. But after a series of seven seven-year sabbatical cycles, 49 years, then in the following year, which is the 50th year, indeed debts are to be completely canceled, not just the payments postponed. Now the logic behind that reasoning is that one of the laws of the sabbatical year, the seven-year cycle, is that the ground is to be worked for six consecutive years, and then in the seventh, it's to lie fallow so that it can rest and rejuvenate. Since Israel would, especially when they first entered Canaan, be primarily a farming society, it follows that a peasant Hebrew who owed money couldn't possibly pay it back during the year that he was, by law, forbidden to grow a crop. Now, it would be kind of like making a law in the USA that every worker was to be given a furlough without pay for one year every seven, but he was still expected to maintain his debt payments. Now, a reasonably well-to-do person could plan for that kind of event by putting away, say, one-sixth of each year's income so that in the seventh year he had sufficient. But a low-income person who needs every penny to survive has no chance of saving up as much as he, he would need for that. The poorer, poorest of the poor, who typically didn't own any land, and who had to glean their food from the corners of the fields belonging to others, they were in an even worse position. They had nothing to start with. And therefore they had no means to store up grain and supplies or save money during that six years of divinely authorized field use so that they could draw from their storage, their savings account, if you would, during the seventh year, when growing was prohibited. Yet even those desperately poor might borrow money from time to time to survive. Then as now, the poorest among us are the most sensitive to any kind of economic disruption. We've seen that, haven't we? And please understand, a forced stoppage of growing crops for a full year every 50 years 
was bad enough. But a stoppage every seventh year was an enormous burden on Israel. And therefore, there is no record to demonstrate that Israel ever observed a jubilee year, according to God's standards. No record of it. I mean, can you envision a time in America when all fields were to be given one year's rest, all debts forgiven, and it was the same year, coast to coast? Or that every kind of loan made to anybody was automatically canceled? The economic consequences would actually be a catastrophe. Okay, But things weren't then in their economic system like they are today in ours. You know, one of the issues we need to understand is how and for what purpose the lending of money operated back in those days. Okay. At first, particularly during the time of Moses and up until around the time of King David, lending money among the Hebrews was usually directed only towards the poor and the needy. It was rarely a business proposition. Usually it was an act of kindness, albeit an act of kindness ordered by God. Loaning money, often in the form of food or seed grain, was designed to ensure that peasants and widows and orphans and the sick could survive. Only later did it become a business. When loaning money to the poor, generally the law was that no interest could be charged among the Israelites. Of course, in order to make a profit, charging interest was a given. So methods were eventually adopted to do that, but it was never meant to apply to what had always previously been pretty much a matter of charity for the poor. So allow me to put this in the form of a God principle. Lending money from a biblical perspective was not about making money or investing money. Rather, it was about the more well-to-do of Hebrew society assisting those dependent people in Hebrew society, usually called brethren or kinsmen, who at times had no other way to survive. Lending was the cornerstone of the Israelite welfare system. When we fast forward a few centuries in the Bible, we're going to find that indeed lending eventually did become a business. But generally speaking, it wasn't Hebrews who were the bankers. Rather, it was Hebrews who were borrowers from foreign investors. Lenders for profit were generally looked down upon by the Israelites as dishonest thieves. Therefore, it was the rare Hebrew who would become a banker, no matter how lucrative the opportunities, because he would also have become a pariah in his own society. And generally, it remained that way until the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in the early 6th century B.C. Up in Babylon, 
Jewish culture changed dramatically. And one result was that upon their release and return to the Holy Land 70 years later, many of the professions that they had looked down upon in prior times, including being moneylenders, were now taken up by the Jews. And in time, those professions actually became mainstays for the new Jewish society. Therefore, by New Testament times, it was usual for Hebrews to be bankers. And so we'll get stories about borrowing and lending as a money-making venture in Christ's era. Just understand that the purpose of borrowing and lending in the Torah became perverted by the time of Yeshua. Okay. And as you can imagine, the poor got the short end of the stick. After all, if you were a lender seeking to make a profit, would you rather loan money with interest to a business person or lend it at little or no interest to a needy person who had scant ability to pay it back? It's not hard to guess which route those with money to lend chose to go. Notice what the flavor of money lending is in our times. It's all about the wealthy controlling the money supply. It's about the rich getting richer by means of consumers having the need to buy the goods produced by the same wealthy businessmen that loan the money. Here in America, we're getting money by means of home equity loans and car loans and personal loans and the use of credit cards at one time at least was rather easy for the middle class, it certainly wasn't so for the poorest among us. The system and purpose that the Lord laid down for loaning and borrowing has been virtually turned on its head over the centuries. Those who need money the most can't get it. And those who use the loans for making more money or buying things that are far more once the need Needs usually have it pretty easily available and pay less interest. Since I believe that the, that understanding the ancient cultures is central to properly understanding the words and intent of the Bible, let me add that borrowing and lending was, of course, a common thing since time immemorial. Okay. We have cuneiform tablets dating to before Abraham that lays out laws from various kings concerning borrowing, lending, and release. Most of the ancient Assyrian clay tablets that have been discovered by the scores of thousands are actually accounting records all right, and business transactions. So as we've been learning... Most of the things that God was ordaining as law for Israel, including the matter of social justice and release, concerned normal everyday matters that were also long established norms among, among the world's nations. Okay. Among the Mesopotamian cultures, it was common, for instance, for kings to release some of the, some of their subjects from debt or from slavery and from their maybe their prison sentences as part of some coronation celebration. 
Of course, while it made the king look pretty magnanimous, the cost of it was on the shoulders who had paid substantial sums for those slaves or had lent the money. It couldn't cost the king anything. Later, we'll find the Greeks and Athenians releasing serfs from their land debt, even taking the land from the rich and powerful who took it from them and returning it to those who it rightfully belonged as a means of righting decades of social wrongs. It's interesting to note that these laws of Moses concerning release, debt repayment, and cancellation, and so on, only included Israelites. Foreigners had no obligations and received no benefits from these laws. This is made all the more clear in verse 3 because it separates the treatment of foreigners from the kinsmen, they're called. Kinsmen meaning a member of Israel. Now in verse 4 is the crux of the matter. It says that the Lord's ideal is that there be no poor in Israel. The concept is that the Lord is giving Israel land for which they did not pay, vines that they didn't plant, fields they didn't clear, even cities they didn't build. Therefore, there is no reason at all for anyone to go without. And everybody should be provided for. By the way, this does not include, there are caveats to this, the lazy, the foolish, the criminal, and the rebellious. And if only, we're told here, only the Hebrews will obey God's laws about caring for the poor and releasing folks from debt and servitude as the Lord commands, then in return, he will bless Israel so abundantly that money and food won't even ever be an issue. There'll be so much. In fact, as it says in the following verses, the result of all this will be that Israelites won't be borrowing money from anybody. Foreigners will be seeking to borrow money from Israel. Now notice the final words of verse 6. You, Israel, will dominate nations. They won't dominate you. This is completely connected with the few words that precede it, which talk about lending money. The idea is that whatever person or society who lends money to another They have a measure of domination over the borrower. Let me tell you a dirty little secret. The reason that America is so hated in many areas around the world is not so much because of our spiritual beliefs as we'd sometimes like to think. It's because we lend money to poverty-stricken third world nations and then want it back. They're poor. We're rich. They know it. They know that without our loans, they won't even survive. They know that this makes us dominant over them. And even if we don't make any overt attempts at domination, it feels dominating. They also know that if we would just show mercy and release them from their debt to us, it would free them. It would lift an impossible burden off their backs and hardly put a dent in our economy. But you know, perhaps the tables are turning. As God balances things out, doesn't He? 
by turning America into a debtor nation totally dependent on our enemies. Debt's enslaving. Debt creates social economic classes. Debt creates anxiety and bitterness. Debt controls the debtor. This principle of the lender being dominant over the borrower is at the heart of so many Proverbs and New Testament commands for the one who trusts the Lord to avoid borrowing except perhaps for sheer survival. The New Testament cautions us that debt is equivalent to slavery to the one who borrows the money. It does not make borrowing or lending a sin, per se. It's more a matter of wisdom versus foolishness. Boy, are we ever learning our lesson on this one, huh? I hope we are. Let me expound a bit more on verse 4. It says there, there shall be no needy among you. See, this is one of those classic if-then dynamics that's at the center of Mosaic law. If Israel will do thus and so, then God will bless them. One of the areas I think is most neglected within Christ's church and perhaps the synagogue is an understanding of just what the Bible means when it speaks about the blessings and the curses of the law. Evangelical Christians especially like to point to Paul's letters. Because he uses the phrase, curse of the law, on a few occasions. And says, and the church often says, that means that the law is inherently bad. I mean, this is really rather easy to explain, so let's just address it right here and now. Every law of God has two sides to it. A curse if it's disobeyed, a blessing if it's obeyed. A curse if it's disobeyed, a blessing if it's obeyed. The curse involves several elements. First, the curse is the result of sin. Because being disobedient to God's laws is the definition of sin. What other definition is there? The ultimate spiritual curse of law-breaking, of sin, is eternal death. The intermediate earthly and physical result of sin can range from a minor penalty all the way up to being executed. The curse of the law is not the law itself. The law is not a curse. And it's not called a curse in the Bible. Rather, the curse is the divine consequence of breaking the law. Just as the blessing is the reward that comes from God's hand for being obedient to his commandments. Now, what disciples of Yeshua are saved from is this eternal spiritual consequence, the spiritual curse of breaking the law. And that consequence is eternal separation from God. See, we're not saved from divine or civil discipline here on earth. 
nor are we saved from the requirement to be obedient to God's commandments. What we have just read here in these first few verses of Deuteronomy 15 makes a crystal clear case of just how the law works. Obey it and receive its blessings. Be disobedient and receive its curses, meaning the punitive consequences. If Israel acts out that part of God's justice system designed to alleviate the suffering of the poorest of society, that part, that part that's called release, shmitah, then Israel will be greatly blessed. If they don't, the earthly physical penalty will be that they will find themselves fighting for their lives and they will be dominated by other nations in every imaginable way. As I said earlier, there is no historical record of Israel ever being obedient to even one jubilee. And this disobedience automatically resulted in the stated consequence, the curse, coming into effect. They were under constant attack from their enemies. They were eventually driven into exile. They had to borrow money and be indebted to foreigners. And even now, with their return to their land, they are holding on by their fingernails and wondering why. And this is to be understood, by the way, as being a divinely ordained consequence. Verse 9 takes on the thought that would be most likely to enter the mind of a person who had the wherewithal to be a lender to the poor under the rules Yehovah has just laid out. Since every seventh year, whatever part of the debt that had not been repaid had to be canceled, and since a Hebrew bondservant who had enslaved himself to a master in order to either repay a debt to that master or just sometimes to have food, okay, he was to be released from his bondage. Then as each seven-year cycle got near to its end, the lender stood to lose more money. You see, this seven-year cycle was set by the Hebrew calendar. It wasn't like buying a car with a seven-year loan that began on the day you drove it off the lot and then ended seven years later. Instead, each seven-year cycle was simply repeating a cycle on the Jewish calendar. It was not tailored to each borrow borrower or indentured servant. So if a person borrowed money five years before the next release year came, the lender collected money from that person for five years before any remaining debt would be canceled. If that same borrower had borrowed money three years before the year of release came around, the lender would only collect repayment for three years and then have to forgive the rest. What happened if one year before the year of release came and a person came to you seeking to borrow money? But you knew that person would have to pay it all back in one year or you'd lose it. 
And that there was no way a typical peasant could ever pay back a sum of money in one year. Well, the thought would be that at some point before that year of release came, whether on the seven or the 50 year cycle, that lenders would just stop loaning money to the poor. Because they didn't want to risk losing most of that money because the date of required debt cancellation was just around the corner. Well, to this the Lord says that if that happens, that poor person whom the Lord cares about so much is going to cry out to him. And the person who refused to lend that money is going to incur guilt. Further says the Lord, get used to it. Get used to it. This is how it's always going to be because... There will, as it says in verse 11, there will never cease to be needy ones in your land. Here's the thing. We've talked a lot about how the Torah and the law are but God's heavenly ideals that have been put into writing on earth. These laws represent God's ideal justice system. I underline the word ideal. Because even though this is how God intends things to be, and one day after Jesus returns, it will be that way. Mankind's fall and our current corrupted state makes the actual carrying out of these ideals to their fullest intended extent a practical impossibility. Because sin is just too rampant. This is reflected in the comment that despite Jehovah's intention that there will be no poor in Israel, in verse 4, and earthly reality, as he says in verse 11, there will always be poor among you. Naturally, it's this same concept that Jesus simply requotes in the New Testament, when he tells his audience in John 12, 8, for the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. In verse 16 now, the situation is covered whereby an indentured servant, remember these are Hebrew servants in service to other Hebrews now, okay, that they would prefer not to be released at the end of the sabbatical or jubilee cycle but to remain in service to this master. This servant is loved. He's happy. He wants to remain with this family. This servant does not have to be released. He can stay at his own choosing. But if he does stay, he is to have a special mark put on him, indicating that his status is no longer one of being a forced slave, but one of choosing to be in service to his master. Now, I hope this subtle difference impacts you. There is an enormous difference between living in forced servitude versus committing to offer your service voluntarily. The first is the condition we are told that we have in relation to Satan before we're saved. The second is the condition... The scriptures tell us that we have in relation to Yehovah after we're saved. Now this mark of having freely chosen to be in service to a master is a pierced ear. Now the ear is the ancient symbol of obedience. 
Because the ear is a word picture of listening and being being obedient to the voice of your master. I recall, as we've discussed before, when the Bible says hearken or listen, it's translating the Hebrew word Shema. And Shema does not mean a kind of passive hearing, like listening to the chirp of a bird or the rhythmic splash of a waterfall. It means to pay attention to what your master is saying and to obey it. The topics of chapter 15 now take a right turn. (laughs) beginning in verse 19, and deal with the required and expected sacrifice of the firstborn cattle. This falls in line with the regularly regularly repeated demand that all firstlings belong to the Lord. Firstlings include everything from farm animals to field crops to the tree harvest to sons born to a man. Only after these firstlings are offered to the Lord, thereby acknowledging Him as the source and the owner of all life, can the worshiper partake. This was only a more detailed ordinance that we're seeing here in Deuteronomy of one that existed going way back to the time of Adam and Eve. Because in Genesis 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel bringing offerings to the Lord with Abel bringing the firstlings of his flock. The basics are that once per year, firstlings are to be brought to the central sanctuary, tabernacle later on the temple, where they're to be made a sacrifice by the priests. There and only there can the worshiper eat some of the meat of that sacrifice. In other words, a worshiper can't claim to sacrifice an animal to God in his hometown and eat it. Sacrifice is only available where the Lord chooses. This opportunity to sacrifice before the Lord was given three times per year, as there were three pilgrimage festivals. Next, the sacrifice had to be without physical defect or blemish. This does not indicate that the animal was 100% perfect, but rather that one could not offer an animal of lesser value. It had to be the best animal that that worshiper possessed. It was the most valuable animal that he had that had to be offered. Further, in honor of the missive that the Lord had recently granted allowing Israel to slaughter meat anytime they wanted to for food, it's a if a firstling was blemished and it couldn't be offered to God as a result, then it was allowable to use it as a food animal. You know, people are people no matter what era. The ancients were just the same as you and I. They were always on the lookout for a good loophole. We say, well... I know God says this and so, but does he really mean it? Okay, what about if? And then we set forth this extraordinary set of twists and turns and unique conditions that maybe we figure that big if can give us a free pass. 
This is why after some new law is ordained or an existing law in the Bible is clarified and expounded upon, the Lord will throw in a reminder of his principles because his principles never change. Therefore, in verse 22, Yehovah reminds Israel that the laws of firstlings and the laws of secular slaughter for food that he has just discussed did not negate other aspects of those laws just because he didn't repeat them. Follow me on that? So he says, remember, defective animals that could have been used for sacrifice if they hadn't been defective are okay to be used as regular food. And the ritually unclean among you are eligible to eat these disqualified animals just as the ritually clean people are. But also remember that in every circumstance, the blood from an animal used for food had to be drained. It had to be disposed of by pouring it on the ground. I have often heard it said, and it's the reason I want to close with this tonight, that if Jesus didn't specifically repeat an Old Testament commandment, then we have no obligation to it. Haven't you heard that? Well, that's just wishful thinking. No such principle exists in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I just showed you the principle that God said, don't think that this variation of the law somehow cancels everything before it. In fact, we find Jesus, being God, knowing how we sons and daughters of Adam think. So he stops right in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount where he was expounding on the law just as Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. And he says, by the way, folks, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill all this. Not one jot, not one stroke is going to pass from the law till heaven and earth pass away. We just read that in Deuteronomy, didn't we? That's what Jesus was reminding folks. That when he was talking about all these principles... That didn't mean that the law had changed. He was just doing what Moses did on Moses' Sermon on the Mount. We'll see you next week.